I ask that God would hear that as our prayer this morning as we enter into the sermon hour. Take your truth, O Lord, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness so that the light of Christ might be seen in us today and our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, would you turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8? This morning, we will be looking at the first eight verses of Nehemiah chapter 8. And if you'll follow along with me, remembering that as I read, these are not my words, but the words of God. Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they said to Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which Yahweh had commanded to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could understand when listening on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women and those who could understand. And all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aneah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah on his right hand, and Padeah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshullam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleah, the Levites, were providing understanding of the law to the people while the people stood in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, explaining and giving insight, and they provided understanding of the reading. And thus far is the reading of the word of God. God. You may be seated, and we'll ask God's blessing on our time now. Father, we come to you this morning as humble servants of Jesus Christ in need of the food that only comes from your word. We pray now by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would enable us to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this past Monday, I returned home from my Monday mowing circuit, and I found Tammy and the kids working in the woods on a new pig pen area. They had been clearing brush and leveling low spots along the fence row and running polywire around the proposed site, And Tammy asked me if I would cut down a few trees which uh, were in the way before I went inside and cleaned up, the largest of which was forked at the bottom and had to be cut in two different sections because it was leaning two different directions and to safely fell it. 
The first side fell down without much fanfare, but the second side was quite a bit taller and required a few more calculations before I decided which way ultimately it was going to go or where I could land it. To make a long story short, I wedged the tree, I cut it, and as it was falling, for those of you who will eventually be listening on audio, I was encouraged to maybe describe what I'm demonstrating, um, the tree ex landed exactly where I intended it to fall, but as it fell, a portion of the top hit another tree and then broke off and came back toward me. So about half of the tree came back towards me and landed about 10 feet in front of me, um, which was not what I had planned. Um, I think there's a Chinese proverb that says, uh, wise man steps out of the way of falling trees. Um, but I didn't. <laughs> I just stood there. Um, the splintered 30-foot long section of tree landed with a boom, like I said, somewhere between six and ten feet from where I was standing. Well, beloved, you know that you can prepare for almost anything in life. You can prepare for a uh, cross-America country vacation. You can prepare for a new side hustle endeavor that you're going to go into. Um, you can prepare for an intruder in your home. Um, you can prepare for final exams, teenagers perhaps, right now. There are those things, however, that no matter how much you prepare for them, the sheer power and awe involved can leave you stunned, speechless, and even motionless, like you just had a near miss with a falling tree. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing in this world so immovable, yet it's self-capable of moving all things, so potent while making the powerful of this world impotent, so arresting and possessing the force to subdue entire nations, all of creation. There is nothing so powerful like all of those things than the word of the book that you hold in your lap right now. Nehemiah has built a wall, and Ezra has built a temple. But neither of them is capable of building the people of God, the ones who will praise and glorify his name in all the earth. They can't create a desire in Israel to renew the covenant and swear to it and then actually keep it. They're entirely incapable of turning hearts of stone into what Yahweh had ultimately intended, the living stones that would comprise the temple that he was to be worshipped in. But this people will turn in repentance. They will stand in reverence. They will worship even with penitence because of the power of the almighty word of God. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning in our text. I want to actually take just a snippet of the last part of chapter 7, and tag it on to verse 8. Some Bibles split this up a little oddly. Allow me to read from the Legacy Standard Bible, chapter 7, verse 73, the second part of that verse. Then the seventh month came, and the sons of Israel were in their cities, and all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they said, to Ezra the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which Yahweh had commanded to Israel. Now, 
There's so much that's packed into this first verse. I could almost devote an entire sermon just to this one verse. Let's look at a few things here. First of all, you'll notice that the people gathered together as one man in Jerusalem. This is, if you remember all the way back to Ezra chapter 3, identical language that's used there. I'll read from Ezra chapter 3 verse 1. Then the seventh month came, so we've got the same pattern of months, and the sons of Israel were in their cities, and the people gathered together as, there's the word, one man to Jerusalem. Unity, brothers and sisters, is not just a New Testament concept. It is a grace gift of God beyond worth for his people that they be unified together. How blessed it is, Psalm 133 verse 1 says, when brothers and sisters and the congregation of the people of God dwell in unity. The second thing that you'll notice is that they entered Jerusalem through the water gate. That's at the northeastern end of Jerusalem. They couldn't gather at the temple because, as you know, no women or children were allowed to gather there. But they gathered at the water gate, which you might be thinking after this morning's baptisms, oh, is there some symbolism here, some imagery? Consider this, the people of God, having left the towns in which they lived, have now entered the city of God for the inauguration and renewal of their covenant with God, passing through a gate called water to celebrate the Day of Atonement where the offering was sacrificed for the sins of the people of God. I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, God writes the best stories. Then you'll notice, what is it that they want? What have they come here for? The people of God have come as one man passing through this water gate, and they are asking for the word of God. We want God's words read over us. Ezra the scribe, or priest, re-enters the narrative at this point. He's been in the background for the last 13 years doing ministry among the people of Israel. And the people tell Ezra, we want the word. Yahweh commanded it to be read over us. Please, Ezra, come and read the word of the Lord to us. Now I want to take just a moment to say that this is such a kindness of the Lord to send them, their priest Ezra, to read the word of God over them right now. The people of God have been working together with Nehemiah for some time. You know Nehemiah, the the zero toleration for unbiblical nonsense, Nehemiah. Refuting his enemies with boldness, Nehemiah. Won't fall for silly woke tactics, Nehemiah. Pulling out soft men's beards, Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the patron saint of Chad Kings everywhere. But God brings Ezra onto the scene. Still, solidly a masculine figure. We talked about this when we went through Ezra. Yet, bringing balance, if you'll allow me, to the force, as it were. Brothers and sisters, the people need some Ezra right now. They do. They've resisted, and now they need to rest. They've been pressed hard. And now they need a priest to come in and heal. They've been building the kingdom, but now they need someone who will come in and build the kingdom in them. Just a brief point of application before I go further. Paul warns against dividing Christ up 
through our partisanship to personalities. Do you not know that you, that is the church of Jesus Christ, are a sanctuary of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the sanctuary of God, in the context he's talking about over-partisanship to personalities, if any man destroys the sanctuary of God over that, God will destroy him. For the sanctuary of God is holy, and that is what you are. Notice how, in the grace of divine providence, God sent Israel two very different men to lead them. They needed Nehemiah, and they needed Ezra. Guard your heart, beloved, against partisanship to personas, to different kinds of people, the ones that tickle your ears. Discipline yourself to listen to a variety of solid teachers of the Word of God. Your favorite person on Canon Plus may say things that are good and true and beautiful, but too much of a good thing can quickly turn into a ruling thing. This is good, good, good. Now it's got to be this way. I grew up with no father figure in my life. And in the last three years, I've listened to gobs of stuff on masculinity and fatherhood and parenting. I've recently been convicted that I need more teaching on basic Christian piety and on the spiritual disciplines and on the holiness of God. So for me personally, just being a little extrospective, if I can use that word, it's been a little less Michael Foster and a little more Paul Washer. It's been a little less King's Hall and a little bit more I'll Be Honest. It's been a little less Zach Garris and a little more J.C. Ryle. Brothers, I know we're in a day and age where we want to hear the voice of the prophet. But don't neglect your priests. Discipline yourself to listen to voices that do more than just tickle the ears. Listen to those who point you to Christ and stir your spirit towards holiness. And when you listen to them, the spirit actually produces holiness in you. Listen to those voices. Listen to a lot of different voices, solid teachers all around, but discipline yourself for the sake of godliness. So here we have in Ezra, or excuse me, in Nehemiah chapter 8, we have Ezra, and the people of God have all gathered together. And they want to begin worshiping Yahweh again, who by his own words created them and all things. And they are calling again for his word. We want to hear the words of our God. And they're doing this in obedience to the word of God. Ezra brings the word, as you see in your text this morning, on the first day of the seventh month, which will inaugurate a series of celebrations beginning with the Feast of Trumpets, that's Leviticus 23, verse 24, was commanded, would be during this period of the seventh month, and then ending in the Feast of Booths, that's in Leviticus 23, verse 34. Now I want to read to you from Deuteronomy 31. This is what Moses commanded right before he concluded that book of Deuteronomy to the people. He said, At the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, at the place that he will choose. You shall read this law before all Israel so that they shall hear it. Assemble the people, the men, the women, the children, and the stranger who is in your town so that they may hear and learn the fear of the Lord your God. 
And be careful to follow all the words of this law. That's Deuteronomy 31, 10 to 12. Beloved, what has God ordained with congregational transforming power like the word of God? I want to speak to you this morning about four ways the church has seen the word of God as unique among all other things in creation. The uniqueness of the word of God. Historically speaking, the church of Jesus Christ has divided it up into four separate things. In addition to the fact that the word of God is infallible and inerrant, the word that you hold in your lap right now is the only word in all creation that has true authority. It is the only word in all creation that has true authority. Paul told Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. So there is no other grouping of words in all of human history that can make that exact claim. If God spoke these words as the Bible claims that he did, then submission to and adherence to each one of the words in this book is direct submission to God. Conversely, to disbelieve or disobey any of them is the same thing as disobeying a direct commandment from Yahweh himself. I'm sure at some point most parents have deputized one of their children with a message to carry to the rest of the family clan. Dad says, come inside, it's time for dinner. Now you know that however they respond, it's usually, yay, it's dinner time. Or perhaps it's, no, he didn't say that, I'm going to keep jumping on the trampoline. However they respond, there will be attending blessings or perhaps discipline involved. Because even though it was a child speaking, even though it was an agent of yours, it was your words that you put in their mouth. And they carry authority. God's word, how much more authority does it care, carry than even in that example that I gave? God's word has absolute authority. The second thing that is unique about the Word of God, is that it has a particular clarity. The theological term for this is called perspicuity. Ooh, means it's easy to understand. I love the fact that the word that describes the thing is not itself easy to understand. God's Word has a particular clarity to it. Someone in here probably raised an eyebrow when I said clarity. You, are you serious? The Bible is the most complicated book I've ever read in my life. I've got a better chance of understanding what a blockchain is than understanding the Word of God. If you want to know what a blockchain is, you can ask Jeremy Mefford. He will tell you. What is meant by clarity is that the Bible is written in a way that it can be understood, even though right understanding does require study, it requires obedience, and it does require the power of the Holy Spirit working in those who are reading. Now, the people are assembled here at the water gate, and you see in the text as we go through it that they need help understanding the word of God. But isn't it interesting that the word itself is what empowers them towards greater understanding? Listen to these verses from Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And we have, as more sure, the prophetic word, Peter says, 
to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. So I'm going to come back to this picture of clarity in just a minute. But God's word does have a particular clarity, setting it apart from all other works in creation. Thirdly, God's word is supremely necessary. There is no other source of information which leads to a legitimate alternative path to the salvation of sinful man. Paul reminded the Romans, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. In order to be saved, one must hear and believe in the word of Christ as it is written. Consider the exclusivity of Paul's statement. Faith is produced in the heart through hearing only one message, and that is the gospel message revealed in the word of God. That message comes to us, as Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, through the sacred writings, which are able to save your soul. I tell my kids all the time that the stories that resonate most with them The stories that resonate most with the human heart are the ones that reflect the greatest story ever told. But no matter how close those stories come to retelling the story of Jesus Christ, none of them can ever bring a person to justification with God. No one has ever been saved by reading Frodo's sacrifice in Middle Earth. It reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ, but no one's ever been saved through that story. No one will go to heaven because Aslan died on the stone table. And no one was justified when he was raised the next morning. Apart from the word of God, no one can be saved. And that is why, beloved, the church has held this word is above all other things in creation, supremely necessary. Lastly, and the one that we'll likely spend most of our time on today, the word of God is solely sufficient for us. What other work is able to truly equip men and women for their life in godliness? To finish that verse from 2 Timothy that I used earlier, all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. You may hear the term sufficient, and think as some people wrongly do, that there's no point in reading anything but your Bible. We know, however, that gleaning from the writings of uninspired human authors is not a denial of the sufficiency of Scripture as long as those writings, or I might say sermons, or audiobooks, or podcasts, or blog articles, as long as those do not replace or subvert the significance of the all-sufficient Word of God. After defeating the Midianites, Gideon was solicited to be the king of God's people. We read through this this last week in our Bible reading. Gideon refused, saying, no, 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 the Lord alone is going to rule over you. And then he turned right around and he made an ephod out of gold, and they all bowed down and worshipped to it. Clearly, God was not enough. He was not sufficient. But, beloved, he has given us his word, and it alone is sufficient to lead us to worship and obey him rightly. So authority, clarity, necessity, and sufficiency. This is the word that the people of God assembled in front of Ezra wanted most and needed most to hear. 
Like a massive chunk of a tree falling with immeasurable weight to the earth, it came from the platform of the priest and landed with power on the hearts of the people of God. And as we'll see in coming weeks, change them forever. Brethren, do you love and long for and wonder and treasure the word of God? I want to notice in these next eight verses how the congregation both revered and responded to the reading of God's word. You see there in your text that Ezra brought the word of God at the request of the people in obedience to God's command. And he stood above the congregation on a wooden platform, something to symbolize the authority and the clarity and the necessity and the sufficiency of God's word for them, that it was over them and that they were not over it. The congregation stood up as he opened the book and began to read. They met in the morning and the reading went on until midday. Notice, and I can't push this too far, but there's no indication in the text that they actually sat down during the reading. All who were present listened, it says, attentively. A show of respect, of course. Ezra blessed the Lord during his reading. Both he and the people responded to the reading of God's word. The congregation shouted their amen twice to the Lord. They assumed appropriate postures of worship, bowing their heads to the ground or raising their hands to the heavens. There was a plurality of leadership there to help the people understand what was read. We're not told the logistics of how that worked, whether perhaps Ezra read a portion of the text and then in individual groups, the Levites that were present were helping the people to understand there's also a translation question a little bit later in this text of whether or not there was translation work needed for those people as they listened. There could have been some foreigners there, some of the slaves who didn't speak the language. The text was likely in Hebrew, whereas at this point most people were speaking Aramaic. So it could have been some translation and some exegesis or explanation going on. In August of last year, I mentioned the regulative principle of worship. God is to be worshipped only as he is directed in the Bible, not through ever-changing cultural norms, not through the purpose of reaching the lost, not to generate a feeling or a sense of worship in the people who are gathered. According to the regulative principle, man's preferences carry 0% weight in God's understanding of what worship is. Ezra chapter 8 is one of the most descriptive as opposed, to, as opposed to prescriptive passages of worship in all of the Bible. And it's interesting to me how much of our worship each week is reflected in this passage. Before I came to this in the text, I had read through Nehemiah several times and I had thought, this passage reflects so much of what we do on Sunday mornings. The gathering of the people to feast on the word of God. The public reading straight from scripture from the platform while the people of God stood in reverence during the time of reading. A period where the text was explained that is that expositional preaching that we do here at Christ the King. And the careful attention to the congregation to what was said. The exaltation of God from the pulpit and the affirmations and actions of the church in response. Even a plurality of elders being present to at some point during the day help the people further understand the text that was read. And you notice the twice mentioning of those who can understand in verses 2 and 3. 
That's actually, believe it or not, a hat tip, a hat tip to family integration, what we do here at Christ the King. Now, you might respond, how so, Chris? It makes it sound like only those who could understand were present. And I understand your question there. First of all, if all Israelite men and women were present, dad and mom would have been forced to employ some babysitting, perhaps from some Ammonites in the area, which would have been unqualified men and women leading the offspring of God's people, which also sounds a lot like contemporary children's and youth ministries. Second of all, even the people who could understand needed help understanding. Isn't that interesting? They needed the text explained to them. More important, above these two, the children were commanded to be present during this reading. I read a few moments ago from Deuteronomy 31, Yahweh had commanded all of the people to gather together. And you remember that in that passage, it said that the children were to be present. The next verse, verse 13 of Deuteronomy 31 says, And their children who have not known, you see, they don't have understanding. And their children who have not known will hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live on the land which you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. The children were to be present in the worship and the reading of God's word. Whether or not you view children in the new covenant, everyone should agree that our children are to grow up with the word of God being read over them so that they can learn about Christ, repent to Christ, and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. We are fools to think that our children are so unintelligent that they can't begin, even at the youngest ages, to pick up on a truth from God's word. The wisdom of the world says, well, you can't train a child like you train a dog. This coming from people who treat dogs like they're human children. The world hates children so much that they think dogs are better equipped to sit still and listen to their master and obey commands. This is ridiculous. The word of God deserves the reverence of the entire congregation of God's people. And as application, brothers, I would ask you today, do you revere the word of God as this congregation in Ezra 8 did? And Nehemiah chapter 8. God's word has been transmitted to you clearly. You can both understand and obey it. This word carries authority over every aspect of your life, and you need it like nothing else. It can and will perfectly equip you for all things that he has predestined you for. Are you eager to hear it? On the weeks you feel less inclined to listen, do you come knowing that this word is the medicine that your soul needs? Do you discipline yourself to not forsake this assembly because you know, you know you live on every word that comes from the mouth of God? Do you honor the word of God by devoting time to it each day, prioritizing it over your comforts and cares? Do you delight in it? Or have you given the time of study to grow over time in delighting in it? Have you taken seriously the exhortation of David to hide it in your heart through memorization and meditation? Sisters, have you given into materialism to the point at which the problems in your life and the things driving up your fear are solved not by the word of God, but by blog articles on Dr. Acts? 
Does Merkula have the answers that you're looking for, sisters? I get that there's no biblical homeopathic cocktail recipes for whatever Captain Tripp's COVID variant we're on right now. But because of your fear for your family's health and your neglect of the solely sufficient word of God that can kill that fear, are things getting better or are they getting worse? Christian children, do you care about the word of God? When I was in youth group, I remember a speaker exhorting us in lots of different ways to put God's word first in our lives. He said some pretty pietistic sounding things, and one of the ones that I remember was that he would never set anything on top of his Bible. He had enough respect for God's word. He wouldn't put a coffee cup on top of his Bible. He wouldn't put another book on top of his Bible. He wouldn't put his Bible in the floor. He wouldn't use it as a coaster. And I know that you can go a little too far with this, but think for just a minute with me, young person about where your Bible has been located all week long. Has it been on your nightstand next to your notebook with a pen? Has it been under a pillow on a couch in the living room? Has it been crammed into a bookshelf really fast with all the wrinkled pages? Or perhaps it was left in the van from last Sunday to this Sunday. Speaking of youth group, let me tell you about one of the most foolish things I ever remember hearing in youth ministry. We had a camp pastor one time holding up his Bible during an evening service. And he was saying something along the lines of, guys, you need to remember, all this is is a book. I know, where's the lightning? Now, putting the most charitable spin on that statement that I can think or remember he may have been referring to the fact that the Bible itself is not God. It is not a member of the Trinity. And as far as that goes, he is right. It is not. But this is not just a book, beloved. At prayer meeting this last Wednesday, there were many petitions for help with private prayer. Nobody looks at their prayer life and says, well, you know what, I've got it made. My guess is you probably feel the same way about your devotion to the word. To some extent, you wish you could do better. You feel about as far away from the zeal of this congregation in Nehemiah chapter 8 as the House and Senate are from balancing the national budget. And that just got a little bit longer this last week. But here's the catch. And this is where scripture shows itself sufficient for our need in this area. The word of God not only commands of us, but has the power to create in us what it commands. I'll say that again. The Word of God has the power to create in us what it commands of us. At the beginning of time, and if you think typologically, at the moment of your salvation, God looked over a vastless void and said, I want light there. And with that command that there be light there, there was light. With the command comes the power for the fulfillment of the command. There was light, Genesis 1, chapter 3. God's word comes with authority, but it also comes with sufficient power from the Holy Spirit to enable us to live pleasing to him. 
So will my word, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty. Without accomplishing what pleases me, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Isaiah 55. Command, accomplishment. Promise, fulfillment. Every time. Every time. And what is required of us? That we attend to this word. Because in the reading of the, God, the Word of God, in the understanding of the Word of God, as we learn more about it, comes the power to obey and walk righteously before the Lord. Are you in a season where giving the Word of God its proper place in your life is difficult? I will admit that I've been there many, many times. Does the authority the Word exerts over you make devotion to the Word seem like a daunting task? Do its mysteries create confusion rather than clarity? Does everything else happening in life seem more necessary than the Word of God? Beloved, do you know why the Word of God is sufficient in all of these things? Because the Word of God is the one Word that reveals to us the person and work of Jesus Christ. It takes you back to an empty cross and a vacant tomb. It points your eyes again towards heaven where your surety sits at the Father's right hand. And in seeing him again each day, life from this word flows into your soul and you are made ready for whatever good works God has foreordained for you for that day. In seeing Christ in all of his word, not just in the New Testament, but throughout. This crowd of people is going to hear the word of God that Ezra has read, and next week we will see that they weep, they mourn, they cry out, because they know how far they've fallen. They know how bad they are. They know that there's no chance. How are we ever going to be made right? How are we ever going to be able to live up to this word? But church, this is the good news. We can read the law now. And rejoice because every scintilla of the law commanded to us has been fulfilled by Christ on our behalf. Every jot and tittle, every last little bit of it, Jesus has fulfilled for our sakes. And as we see Christ in his fulfillment of the law for us, we are enabled in that abiding transaction to obedience to Christ, to all the good works that please the Lord. So each day, beloved, go to the Word and find Him. Find Christ. And let this kingdom of Christ that we are building in Anderson County be first built in you. Father, we thank you that you have given us your Word and that it is sufficient for building us up and preparing us for every good work that you have for us. Let us not be daunted by it, even that the Word itself commands that we attend to it diligently. But Lord, help us remember that by the Holy Spirit, the Word of God is made clear to us. And that it is extremely and most necessary above the most pressing things in our lives. And that it is sufficient. Not only can it equip us to be like Christ, but it most certainly will equip us to be like Christ. That you will use it to shape and fashion us in every way after the image of Jesus. That each one of your children, names written in the Lamb's book of life, can stand in front of you and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, let us go to the word each day 
and receive these promises. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.